There is a well-known saying, a very well-known saying that is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And it's a very famous saying. I'm sure you've heard of it. It goes something like this. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I understand that people who have actually studied carefully the writings and the life of St. Francis can never seem to find where he actually said this. And so this may be, you know, he could have said it, but there's no proof of it. So this may be one of those urban legends that uh, has spread in the church. But there is something uh, on the face of it, something appealing about the statement that says, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, in as much as it commends us a life that is beautiful, a life that is attractive, a life that accords with godliness. And, you know, that is actually an important thing. But at the same time, when we think about this statement, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, we realize that there is a profound uh, uh, confusion behind it. Because the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners, which makes it necessarily a message that has to be proclaimed in and by words. Because there is no wordless action that you and I can perform. There is no wordless action that can convey the history and significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. And what that means is that if we are to be faithful to Jesus, and if we are truly seeking the good of our neighbors, we have to use words to communicate the quality and the outcome of Jesus' life and death. Uh, The gospel is not about the perceived quality of our character and life. Do you see that? Do you understand that? That's really important. The gospel is not about the good news of what we have done what people might perceive in us in worthless action. The gospel is a proclamation. It's a report of the quality and the outcome of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that is why we have to be very careful and understand that that there are some aspects of the statement, preach the gospel if necessary, use word. There are some aspects of the statement that is both true and attractive, but at the same time, there is a a significant level of confusion about what the gospel is. The gospel is not about you. It's not what you have done. The gospel is not about how you live. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about how he lived and died and rose from the dead. Now, that said, It is true that a faithful witness of Jesus is also transformed by that gospel. The message changes the messenger. And we see here the gospel's impact on Paul. And so today, uh, somewhat atypical of my usual pattern of giving you three points, I just have two points for you this morning. 
And the first focus will be to consider Paul and his relationship with his friends. Paul and his friends. Now, if you remember all the way back in chapter 23, uh, Jesus, in verse 11, Jesus said to Paul, Take courage, for as, uh, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so finally, after more than two years of delay, Paul is leaving Caesarea and bound for Rome, but it was in a manner that he had not expected. He is leaving as a prisoner in order to make an appeal to the emperor of that time, who was Nero. And so Paul is placed under the care of a Roman centurion, Julius. And you note here that Paul has some traveling companions. First, he is accompanied by Luke. How do we know? Uh, look at verse 1. And when it was decided that we, that we should sail for Italy... Uh, Throughout Acts, we've noticed the change of pronouns here and there. When the book of Acts starts to speak in first-person pronoun, when we hear, we did this, we did that, this is where Luke is himself present as an eyewitness of what has happened. So as, as Paul is being transferred to Rome as a prisoner, Luke is traveling with him. And not only that, notice verse 2. We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. We have uh, heard of Aristarchus throughout the book of Acts. Uh, He was an important figure in Paul's life. Uh, For example, in Colossians chapter 4, when Paul writes to the people, uh, the believers in Colossae, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And you might remember that Aristarchus had accompanied Paul to Ephesus, and where when the Ephesians could not find Paul, they grabbed Aristarchus, and Aristarchus suffered mob violence. And you might also remember that Aristarchus then followed Paul to Jerusalem. And so in Philemon, in verse 24, Paul writes, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So you see, Luke and Aristarchus, they shared in Paul's labors. They shared in Paul's afflictions. And I think it's really important for us to remember, just because so much attention and focus are placed on on Paul, we might get the impression that he was alone, a kind of a spiritual lone ranger who did everything by himself. Uh, But wherever Paul went, he had friends, he had partners, and he had a fellowship of believers. And as Paul is being transferred to Rome, we see that Luke and Aristarchus are uh, traveling with him. And scholars uh, surmise that the only reason they were allowed to travel with uh, Paul uh, in this uh, prisoner transfer is that they probably identify themselves as Paul's slaves. Uh, That was the only circumstance under which these men would be allowed to travel with Paul. And so what we get is a sense of a deep loyalty that existed between Paul 
Luke and Aristarchus. And Luke and Aristarchus, they shared in Paul's labors. They shared in his afflictions. They gladly were humbled with him. They gladly suffered with him. And why would they do that? You know, this kind of loyalty only comes from a deep friendship. Paul had deep, lifelong friends. And that becomes also very clear when we look at verse 3. The next day we put in, uh, put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Uh, Sidon was about 70 nautical miles north of Caesarea. Uh, that's where they left from. And you might remember that uh, Paul and Barnabas had encouraged the believers there on their way to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And later, uh, when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, that journey which resulted in, in his arrest, we read it in chapter 21 that Paul and his company uh, spent a week with the believers in nearby Tyre, uh, encouraging the believers there. And so the picture that we get is that Paul, he knew the believers and he loved them. He considered them his dear friends and they in turn considered Paul their dear friends. And, and the picture that emerges is, is something that is really uh, beautiful and perhaps um, somewhat against the norm of our day. Uh, today we have uh, megachurch pastors with layers of bureaucracy separating them from their congregation so that they don't know their flock. Um, I remember talking to a, an old friend who told me that, that they have been attending this particular church for three years, but they've never met the pastor. The pastor had no idea who they were. Um, and in some cases, we hear news about um, increasingly um, how pastors and spiritual leaders are very abusive of their congregation. They, they treat people as a means to an end. Um, but Paul, he never used and abused people in the name of a cause. He never uh, exploited people for the sake of the kingdom. But Paul's life and ministry had a characteristic warmth and openness. He never considered himself so gifted uh, that he did not need friends or fellowship. But he readily opened his heart to friendship. Whether they were important or ordinary, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were learned or not, Paul was their friend and he valued their friendship. In other words, Paul was like Jesus. And this is one very particular way we see how the message changed the messenger. You know, once these people that Paul became friends with, once he considered them beneath him, once he considered them his enemies, once he considered them the dregs of society. But what has happened? 
He's come to love them. He's come to value them. Why? Because the message changed the messenger, and Paul became like Jesus. You know, one of the most beautiful things that we learn in the gospel, which at the same time makes it one of the most difficult things to accept, is that Jesus' heart is wonderfully open. Now, we come to discover what treasure that is. But truth be told, a lot of people have difficulty accepting that, both at the beginning of their Christian life and throughout their Christian life. How often do you struggle with your sins and feel yourself rejected by Jesus? Because you can't really bring yourself to believe that Jesus' heart is wonderfully open to sinners. But it is. And that's why we can hardly believe it because, you know, we have never seen such grace and open heart in our lives. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, Christians sometimes appear as phony people to the unbelievers. It's not that Christians are phony, but the unbelievers see the unbelievable grace and kindness that Christians talk about and, and embody and, and, and act according to. And unbelievers have a hard time accepting that. And all they can see is just because they've never seen it before, they can only imagine that it is phony. But it isn't phony. Because what has happened to the believers and what's happened to you is that as you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, slowly and gradually but surely, you have become a little bit more like Jesus each day. And so that you have learned to love as Jesus loves. You have learned to treat other people as Jesus treats them. Sure, we do not yet love as perfectly as Jesus loves, but you know we are growing, aren't we? And that's the beautiful thing about growing in the Lord. Um, and it's one of the most marvelous things that happens to Christians in their life of faith, how the gospel changes us, and we become more and more like Jesus. And so we begin to see that, that, that love is actually growing. And we begin to see that same love and grace in our brothers and sisters as they become more and more like Jesus. It is marvelous and it is beautiful how God's people love one another. We learn to depend on one another. We learn to cherish one another. And do you see that's what has happened to Paul? These people that he once considered beneath him, these people that he once considered his enemies, these people that he would never give a moment of his day to, he learned to love them. He learned to treasure them. He depended on them. He cared for them. And that's one way we see how the message has transformed the messenger, Paul and his friends. And that brings us to the second and today the last point. Um, look at Paul's relationship with the fellow passengers. Uh, you notice that the next leg of the voyage begins in Myra in Lycia. And in verse 6 we read, There the centurion found the ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Uh, Rome, the empire, depended heavily on Egypt 
for its grain. Uh, Egypt, with its fertile Nile, was the breadbasket of the ancient world. And scholars estimate that Rome imported over 100,000 tons of grain from Egypt annually. And so cargo ships carrying grain would sail from Egypt, uh, from places like Alexandria, and they would sail, set sail from Egypt to Italy in spring when the weather was mild and the winds blew in from the south. Uh, but in the fall, the winds changed direction and began to blow from the north and the west, and the sea became very dangerous, and so much so that many ships were lost. And uh, I understand that divers have found more than 1,000 wreckages in these waters. Uh, these are treacherous waters during uh, fall and winter. But the Emperor Claudius, who, who preceded Emperor Nero, because Rome depended so heavily on grain import from Egypt, Claudius offered a rich financial incentive to the ships that would bring grain in winter. And notice verse 9, Luke tells us, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Uh, the Jewish people have a different uh, system of calendar than we do. And in their calendar, the Day of Atonement, and that's the one day that the Lord commanded his people to fast, the Day of Atonement falls uh, somewhere between our late September and early October. And now Luke is telling us that the fast is already over, which places these events uh, mid to late October, which is a very dangerous time for sailing uh, to Italy. But Julius, he found an Alexandrian cargo ship taking the risks to sail these dangerous waters. And Julius took Paul and other prisoners on board this ship hoping to reach Rome as soon as possible. And as expected, the voyage was very difficult. We read here that the winds blew in from the west and slowed their progress. And after Canidus, they were soon blown off course almost due south. And so they had to sail under the lee of Crete of Salmoni. And so they put the island in between their, the northern wind and they're sailing along the coast of the southern coast of Crete where they uh, were sheltered from the, the vicious winds. And with difficulty, they arrived in a small fishing village called Fair Havens. Uh, but it was a small harbor exposed to high winds. And Paul, Paul had traveled these areas extensively. A few years prior to these events, Paul had written to the believers in Corinth, and you can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes there, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger at sea. 
You see, we don't read about every affliction, travails, and hardship that Paul ran into during his many years of service. But in Second Corinthians chapter 11, he gives us a little uh, a window into his life and experiences. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a day and a, a night and day floating in the open sea. <laughs> Paul knows these waters. He is experienced, and he has a healthy and realistic respect for how dangerous these treacherous waters can be. So out of his experience, Paul offered his counsel, Sirs, I believe that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now that's really interesting because if you remember chapter 23 where Jesus told Paul, you must be my witness in Rome, now, that's a guarantee, isn't it, that Paul, at any rate, Paul himself will arrive in Rome in one piece. So Paul knows that he is going to survive this journey. But what about other people? That's what Paul is thinking about. What will happen to my fellow passengers? But sadly, in verse 11, we read that the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Um, I mean, on the one hand, you, you, you say to yourself, of course, you know, you would listen to an experienced sailor rather than a preacher, wouldn't you? I mean, that makes so much sense. But as we read on, it, this decision turns out to be disastrous. And from this, um, at times there is an argument that is made that you should always listen to preachers. <laughs> um, it seems to me that is, uh, that is an abuse of this passage. A preacher is no more an expert by the virtue of his office as a preacher in other areas of learning. Um, you know, a preacher is, is an amateur in other areas of learning where he has not spent the time and the work to, to gain that expertise. And I think it's an, a spiritual abuse to tell people just because a, one, a person is a preacher that he is an expert in everything and in anything. Uh, that is certainly not what is happening here. And I want you to listen to me very carefully because there are people who say that the pastors know everything. And some pastors actually act as though they know Everything. Um, that's not what this passage is about. But on the one hand, Paul, he has traveled these waters extensively. He knows by experience the difficulties that are often present in these areas. And secondly, secondly, there is a reason why Paul is saying to these people, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. You see, Julius, he was a career soldier. If you are a Roman centurion, that means you've spent years in the military. He's a career military man. Uh, unfamiliar with the ways of sailing. And so he defers to the good judgment of those who understood the business 
of sailing. But it becomes obvious that the pilot and the owner of the ship did not give him an advice that was helpful. You see, what they're thinking is that, as it was the common practice in those days, the grain ship and the cargo were insured. And there was an amazing financial incentive to press on during the winter months to reach Rome. In other words, there's little to lose and tremendous profit to be made. And you noted also earlier that Paul was traveling with some other prisoners. Rome imported convicted criminals and killed them for sports in the arena in order to entertain its citizens. In other words, their lives counted for nothing. They were going to die anyway, so who cares about them? So that's the the mindset, that's the reasoning behind the pilot and the owner of the ship. The ship is insured, the cargo is insured. These passengers, they're nothing. But if we can press on, there's great profit to be made. So the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix and spend the winter there. And it seems to me that was likely a pretext. That's what they told Julius for their decision to press on. And very likely, they would likely uh, try to press on all the way to Italy. Now, we have to stop here. Uh, we will pick it up the next, uh, next Sunday. But I want to finish by noting a few things. Paul says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyagers will be with injury and with much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Paul knows, because Jesus told him, Paul knows he's going to survive. He is going to arrive in Rome in one piece. But at this point, he is deeply concerned about his other fellow passengers. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, after more than two years of delay, Paul must have been eager to reach Rome. After more than two years of being imprisoned and wearing the chains, I'm sure he was very eager to put this all behind him. And he knew that he would arrive safely. But Paul cared even for those whose lives were considered worthless. And Paul's counsel here reflects God's heart for those that are written off. God's heart for those who have no hope and a future. You know, this is the loving heart of Jesus. Jesus who cares not only for the rich, but who cares for the poor. Jesus who not only cares for the celebrated people, but he who cares for the despised people. 
Jesus who not only cares for those with bright dreams for the future, but Jesus who cares for those who have lost all dreams. This is the heart of Jesus. To look out for the interest not only of himself, but to look out for the interests of others, to care for the lives and the well-being of those who have been written off and as considered as nothing and worthless. This is the heart of Jesus who gives himself to everyone and anyone who will come to him. And so I end with this. Will you come to Jesus and keep coming to Jesus. In Jesus, you will find a safe haven. In Jesus, you will find shelter. In Jesus, you will find the Savior with the, with, with the heart that is unbelievably open towards you. No matter who you are, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter whether you are respected or despised, no matter whether you can still dream about a wonderful future before you or your dreams and hopes have been dashed, no matter who you are, Jesus cares for you and Jesus loves you. Would you come to him and keep coming to Jesus? Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the instructions and for your word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that, that we might clearly perceive the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his good news. And that we who have put our faith in Jesus would learn to grow in our confidence and love for him. And that we too also might be changed by the gospel. May our lives also uh, become a reflection of Jesus. May our hearts mirror the heart of Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.